Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking at yet another bumpy week for Boris Johnson's government, including the extraordinary U-turn on free school meals over the summer, the abrupt decision to shut down the Department for International Development, and further misadventures in the UK's growing culture wars. Plus, we'll be diving into the latest difficulties with the NHS's homemade solution for a test and trace app, which has been substituted this week for technology-driven instead by Apple and Google. To discuss all this, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, political correspondent Laura Hughes, and health editor Sarah Neville. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Marcus Rashford was a character few in Boris Johnson's government were especially familiar with a couple of weeks ago. But one of England's most popular footballers has managed to do more than most ministers in shaping government policy, thanks to his campaign to provide free school meals over the summer holidays for some of Britain's poorest children. After days of humming and hawing, the Prime Minister finally caved into Mr Rashford's public campaign and coughed up £120 million for one-off tickets to provide meals over the summer break. But the sense of turmoil has continued in other areas, not least the decision on Tuesday to roll up the Department of International Trade into the Foreign Office and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab's embarrassing lack of comprehension about the Black Lives Matter movement. So George, let's begin with the free school meals U-turn. This struck me as a classic of the U-turn genre. Well, it was a classic of the U-turn genre in the sense that it was a U-turn that you could have seen coming from space. It was such an obvious campaign that they had to give in to once Marcus Rashford has started mobilising his campaign for vouchers for free meals to be provided over the summer holidays. It was hard to see how the government could resist. It had already conceded the principle that these vouchers should have been available during the Easter holidays, and they were made available. The amount of money was relatively small, certainly in, in the scheme of the things, the numbers that we're talking about at the moment in the, with the coronavirus outbreak. But how did the government think it could possibly win a public relations battle with an articulate young footballer speaking from the heart about his own experiences of poverty growing up in Manchester, especially at the time of the Black Lives Matter campaign as well. How could they have thought they could have resisted that campaign at all? And it ended up in the ludicrous situation where the Labour Party was forcing a vote on this in the House of Commons. And I spoke to a number of Tory MPs that morning who were petrified at the idea that they were going to have to walk through the division lobbies and oppose Marcus Rashford's campaign. One of them said to me, this will be on every single leaflet put out by my opponents at the next election. And their worst fear was they were going to be marched through the lobbies to oppose this campaign and then find Boris Johnson U-turning a few hours later. So in the end, common sense prevailed and the government did perform this U-turn. 
And there were, in fact, some ministers who were chuntering that they were worried about losing that amendment for the reasons you just said, George, that I remember somebody texted me that morning saying, just watch the numbers on this very carefully, because people don't want to be seen as being on the wrong side of a very public campaign with a very public figure. And you have to ask yourself, why were they so tinnied on this for so long? I mean, I don't entirely buy the idea that people in number 10 didn't know Marcus Rashford was. He's a well-established England international. We had this ludicrous situation on the morning of the U-turn that Boris Johnson claimed he had only become fully aware of the Marcus Rashford campaign on the morning that he did the U-turn. It had been on the front pages of newspapers that morning and the previous morning as well, and been a huge story in the media for a few days. So either you take him at his word and basically assume that he wasn't really apprised of what a powerful campaign this was by his media advisors, or you have to take the view that he was just turning a blind eye to it. It certainly shone a spotlight on the strange behaviour in number 10 at the moment, over the last few weeks, actually. And this week, covering politics, you'll have found this, Seb, as well, it's felt like you're almost in an episode of the thick of it, where every day comes up with more and more ludicrous U-turns, mistakes, gaffes, people saying absolutely ludicrous things. I think everyone needs a holiday, basically. It has felt a bit like that, Robert Shrimsley. There was the moment where Matt Hancock came out after the U-turn was announced and got Marcus Rashford's name wrong, describing as Daniel Rashford. And obviously, it's very easy to have a pop at Conservatives to say they're out of touch and they don't understand what's going on in popular culture. But as George was saying, this campaign had been so sustained, had so much profile on TV, newspapers, social media. You have to ask yourself why people in Downing Street or in the Department of Health or just anyone in government wasn't aware of this and ministers weren't fully briefed about what was going on. Anyone could be forgiven for the old stumble around someone's name, especially when they're working flat out and exhausted. But the fundamental point, I think, underpinning all of these issues is the scale of government spending and just how much government is being forced to spend every day on everything. And its instinctive default position is to say no to new campaigns and try and tough out as many of them as possible because there are so many worthwhile causes. That's the generous interpretation. The less generous interpretation is the one I think that George has set out, which is that sometimes in politics, you can just see when you have to back down when you're going to take so much trouble if you don't. And the key point is that the Labour Party has been quite good now at focusing on these issues, which are going to make Tory MPs very uncomfortable. Keir Starmer did it a few weeks ago on the charge made to overseas health workers and forced a government climb down, again, after the government initially said it wasn't going to. And this was the same. They're putting Conservative MPs in positions that they are feeling deeply, deeply uncomfortable about, where there will be a nasty backlash against them. And the government is forcing them to take those positions. And I think the only thing you can say that comes out of this tolerably well for the Conservatives is that they are at least smart enough to get their U-turns in reasonably quickly once they realise they've walked into a hole. So the only thing that the Conservatives take any satisfaction in is that at least they picked up the signal when it was coming at them loud. That wasn't always true of past governments. And I think they're going to have to get cuter at spotting these problems in advance, but at least they don't keep digging when they're in the hole. And why do you think this is, George, that we've got this continual issue, that the U-turns have been stacking up this week, not least the NHS's app, which we're talking about later in the podcast, but it feels, and this is an issue we've touched on several times in the 
past couple of weeks that there's this lack of grip at the centre of government here. There's any kind of lack of strategic communications or strategy about how to deal with things beyond the events of that day. Now, if you're being generous, you can say, well, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's unforeseen, very difficult events all the time. That's excusable. But on the other hand, it doesn't exactly lead to a sense of competence about this government. And when you look at the polls, they still haven't recovered from the Dominic Cummings affair, that the Conservatives are still way down on the lead they had before this. Boris Johnson's approval ratings are still way down. And Keir Starmer's ratings have been increasing significantly. So it's not just a Westminster bubble thing, looking at how it's all feeling very chaotic. Voters seem to feel it too. Yeah, I think the Dominic Cummings thing knocked their confidence in number 10 and not the confidence of the centre. And I think the thing that's uniting all of these things, really, is the fact that Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove as well want to run everything in this government from the centre. Now, if you've got people who are exhausted trying to run a government operation against a global pandemic and are trying to run everything else that a government does from the centre, where you disempower ministers from making their own decisions, you end up in the kind of chaos that we've seen. You know, one or two people can't possibly be running everything from desks in number 10 Downing Street. Robert mentioned that they've been getting better at doing quick U-turns. I mean, that hasn't always been the case, has it? I mean, we look at the test and trace app. That was a U-turn you could see coming as well, which has been allowed to fester for weeks. You know, this sort of dying a slow death on the Isle of Wight. So I think the confidence has been shaken in the centre. And I think the problem is, if you're trying to run everything from the centre, the centre has to be running on all cylinders. And that certainly isn't the case at the moment. And the other point that is really striking about this government is when you think about how recent the election was, how new this government is and how long it's got to go, how quickly it has got into a bunker mentality and got into that crouch position where it looks at the outside world as being full of enemies all of the time. And every problem is part of the conspiracy against it. And that bunker mentality is just not very helpful when you're trying to deal with issues flying at you all over the place, because your initial instinct is to blame everybody else and avoid any conciliatory mindset. And I think that's part of the problem. And I think one of the things we're going to see over the coming parliament is the emergence of the Conservative Parliamentary Party as almost the only break on this government, because the only time it seems to be ready to back off is when sufficient numbers of Conservative MPs start saying, hang on a minute, we can't support that, unless it gets out of its bunker a bit more and finds a better way to communicate with its parliamentary party, then it's going to be doing that more and more. And that's a double problem, not only the problem in itself, but also they always say in the Whip's office that rebellion is a matter of habit. Once you get into the habit of voting against the government, it's very easy to continue. So you really don't want loads of MPs who at the moment are not very keen to vote against you, encouraged to do so. Can I just pick up on that? It's a very good point. So I think we've often taken the conventional view that Boris Johnson's just won an 80-seat majority. It was only six months ago. He's got four and a half years until he has to face the voters again. But the fact is, the parliamentary party now are the break, as Robert said, on Boris Johnson. To speak to any MP, there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's a question about whether the spell of Dominic Cummings has been broken a bit by the episodes up in Barnard Castle and Durham and so on. The communication between Number 10 and the parliamentary party has been appalling. The parliamentary party feels neglected. And though a lot of them owe their seats to Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, finding politics that loyalty doesn't last for that long. 
Indeed, and there was someone in the Whips office we reported a couple of weeks ago we talked to who said that we might have an 80-seat majority, but in some respects it's actually close to a 20-seat majority because if you look on Huawei, for example, where Boris Johnson came close to losing his first vote when 38 MPs rebelled on that and on this issue of the free school meals, again, it does seem that Tory MPs are able to get together and are willing to face up to Downing Street. There's been more calls this week. I saw Rob Halfen, who chairs the Education Select Committee and a very successful campaigning MP has been saying number 10 needs to have better relations with the party. It doesn't have an effective political secretary who can communicate with MPs and there's talks they might bring in a big beast from the party's backbench to do that but we'll see on that. But one thing George that Downing Street has done this week which it is good at is playing to the culture wars and at the beginning of this week we were still arguing about statues. The Winston Churchill statue on Parliament Square had been boxed up by Sadiq Khan ahead of protests last weekend. And this came a big rallying point for Conservative MPs, them all getting very angry. Boris Johnson penned this column for the Daily Telegraph saying that this was an absolute disgrace, this shouldn't happen again. And he said he would fight with every breath in his body to make sure Winston Churchill's statue was not pulled down, even though nobody was actually really asked for it to be pulled down. It was only very minority fringe campaigners were calling for that. But one element of this that I've heard from people in Downing Street is plotting this war on woke, that there are people who are advising Boris Johnson who like the idea of fighting culture wars. They think it's a good way to shore up the Tory base and to create dividing lines with Labour. And again, it speaks to that campaigning vote leave mentality, but it's not really a substitute for good governing. No, it's not. I mean, you wrote a very good piece on the war on woke and that mindset in number 10. I don't think Boris Johnson feels entirely comfortable with it, to be honest, though I know people in Downing Street are urging him to go down that route. I think Boris Johnson realises his responsibilities as Prime Minister is not to exacerbate divisions in the country. But when you're on the back foot, and as Robert said, you're in that bunker mentality, you're trying to find your way out of it. It is tempting to play the populist card. And I think there was an element of that in the decision this week to merge the overseas aid department, DFID, with the Foreign Office. Now, to be fair to Boris Johnson, this is something he's been talking about for a while, the idea of putting foreign aid more at the disposal of British foreign policy and more of an effective lever of British foreign policy. But nevertheless, the timing of that this week felt a bit to me like it was a government that was on the back foot, desperate to try and set the agenda, and knowing very well that anything which suggests you're going to rein in the overseas aid budget is something which is going to play well with certain parts of the Tory press. So it was rushed forward without very much consultation, And with the result that actually it didn't get as favourable headlines as you might expect. Even the Daily Telegraph was pointing out that this idea was criticised immediately by three former prime ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. So I think Boris Johnson's torn on this from declaring a full out war on work. I'd agree with that. And Robert, this thing about rolling different the FCO, we know this is something Boris Johnson has long wanted to do. He told the FT back at the beginning of 2019, this is what he thought should happen. He became Prime Minister six months later. And ever since then, we've known that the Department of International Trade would get rolled back in and the FCO. And as has been pointed out by lots of folks this week, every Labour government has created a separate international aid department and every Conservative government has rolled it back into the FCO. So it's hard to see this as anything but playing to the base here. And there are some very good arguments about why it will help deliver better diplomacy. The former Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkin probably made the best case for it in an op-ed this week. But again, the reason they sort of pushed this announcement out 
on Tuesday in the middle of all this row about free school meals and the general competence of the government just again seemed to be playing to the base naturally and I just don't really see if it achieved what they wanted it to. Well, I think it was the coming together of two different impulses. The first being exactly the one you said, that there are a lot of people in the Conservative Party who don't really like the concept of overseas aid budgets and are happy to see that money redeployed in a way that supports Britain's economic and diplomatic goals a little more directly. It's a little less charitable, but it's possibly more effective, they would argue. That's highly open to doubt. The other thing I think you have to remember is that Boris Johnson himself was Foreign Secretary at a time when the Foreign Office was torn apart. He's made Foreign Secretary. He loses control of the Brexit negotiations. He loses trade to the new Department of International Trade. And you've still got DFID. And I think the Foreign Office is possibly the grandest Whitehall department with not that much control over anything anymore. It's got a very small budget. It was being dismembered. And it's almost as if the more the UK lost the empire, the more the Foreign Office has had to fight for its own little empire. And Boris Johnson, having been a foreign secretary, will have been highly sympathetic to that. There is a political argument that says, as we become less important in the world, what we do do has to have more clout and has to have more direct impact. We have to marshal all of our resources in a way that maximises what we do. The problem with that argument, as has been made, is that actually we lose the soft power value of the Department for International Development and there could well be a consequence of kinds that we haven't thought about. And I think the problem is there is still a huge mindset in the Conservative Party which looks to Britain's past and thinks this is a great advantage to the UK. It looks to the Commonwealth, it looks to the Empire, and it thinks that all the countries that were once of the Empire have this enormous debt of gratitude towards the UK and are desperate to align with it, do deals with it. And of course, a large number of the countries that were in the Empire don't feel that way towards Britain at all. When the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced a test, track and trace system, he said the NHS's homebrewed app would be a key part of the plan to ensure that coronavirus does not spread out of control in the UK when the lockdown lifts. But two months later, the app has failed to materialise on a national scale after a trial on the Isle of Wight showed it was not quite up to scratch. And in a move that surprised absolutely no one in Westminster and Whitehall, the government announced this week it would move from its own platform for the contact tracing app to technology developed by Apple and Google. Laura Hughes, you followed all the joyous ups and downs of the app saga for months now. Why did the UK government make this error? So I think at the beginning of all of this, the government set about creating their own app before they actually knew that Apple and Google were going to develop technology themselves. And so what happened was a lot of time and resource and money, we don't know quite how much money, was put into developing this NHS X app. And there was a real feeling, I think, from the health secretary and also all the officials working on it, that they didn't really want to let go of this project after the amount of time and effort that went into it. But as the app was trialed on the Isle of Wight, as it was developed, they just were beset with technical problems and delays, and they were criticised by privacy campaigners. And I think the Prime Minister, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, was getting increasingly frustrated as to why we couldn't just launch it. Because as you mentioned, at the beginning of all of this, the public were very much led to believe that the track and trace approach to contain this coronavirus and to get the public moving again, the app was going to be a really central part of this. And then they completely rewrote the rules and said, actually, no, it's not really that important. 
And there was a sense that, well, this is just looking like a complete and utter shambles. And they basically have just had to put their hands up this week and accept that they'll follow what other countries have done, including Germany, Italy and Canada. And they're just going to use this system that's based on Apple and Google technology. And the key difference between our version, Laura, and the Google and Apple version is all to do with the centralization of this, that when the NHS built their own app, the idea would have this huge centralized database, which privacy campaigners would love, as you can imagine, that would store anonymized versions of data about who had been in contact with whom when they had been diagnosed with COVID-19. And the idea being that epidemiologists could use this to model things to try and predict outbreaks quicker. But it seems as if it has hasn't worked. And there's a bit of a blame game going on with the NHS saying Apple wasn't playing ball here on this, whereas Google were, in fact. I've seen some reports this morning saying that the Google version of the NHS app had a 75% success rate, but the Apple version was much less successful. But by moving to this new platform provided by Apple and Google, it's all done locally. There's no centralized database. So it's really hard to know exactly what went wrong, but it does seem mad the government has just put all this time and effort and again, wasted weeks that could have been used to try and clamp down on coronavirus and make sure contact tracing was working to try and get us out of this economic shutdown. Yeah, I mean, Matt Hancock on Thursday night at the press conference was trying to make this point that he'd always back two horses that the government had been developing their own system, but had also been looking at the Google Apple technology at the same time, which is sort of true. They were both always being considered. And he sort of sought to shift a bit of the blame onto Apple because one of the reasons that ministers were forced to completely abandon their own model was that rigorous testing they've been doing showed that it's just not effective on Apple smartphones. And obviously, a lot of people have Apple smartphones. The idea now, they say, is to use some of the proximity detection technology that they had as part of the NHSX app and merge it with the Apple Google system. So you'll have the sort of new product at the end of the year, which is obviously a lot later than we originally said we were going to get it. But it's hard. I think that they felt that unless you're able to give really detailed estimates of how close people have been with one another, you might end up with lots of false positives being sent out to people. The other interesting point that they keep hammering home is that they still are feeling, I think, that the trial on the Isle of Wight showed a lot of people don't like using this app and they don't want to be informed by technology that they might have coronavirus. They much prefer to be told by humans. So a lot of emphasis is being put on the human traces. It's been a bit of a mess. It's extraordinary. The story's just rolled on and on and on. And we put all this time and effort into it. And a lot of people just didn't want to let it go. Now, Sarah Neville, the saga over this app speaks to something that could be described as Whitehall exceptionalism, that over many, many years, the UK government, the UK state has embarked on IT projects that are inevitably nearly always a disaster. Universal credit is one that comes to mind from recent years, but there are many others. And it seems to be this consistent error of overestimating the UK state's capacity to deliver these projects, not relying on enough outside advice and being over-optimistic with the time frame here. You've reported on a lot of these issues over the years. Do you think there's anything unique about this issue with the app or is this just another in the line of us being unable to deliver IT projects from the centre? I think, to be fair, as Matt Hancock pointed out on Thursday night, there have been problems with apps around the world. This hasn't been a very easy nut to crack 
But that said, I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the factors that has been overhanging this whole saga and the government's extreme reluctance to surrender its own version of the app has been this notion of UK exceptionalism and the idea that we can create something which, you know, as Boris Johnson said himself, is world-beating, not just world-class, but world-beating. And the gap between the rhetoric and the reality here really has been genuinely embarrassing. And most damagingly for the government, it is just the latest example of failings which have characterised our approach to coronavirus in many areas over the last four or five months, particularly a reluctance to look at what's been happening overseas and to fail to learn some of the lessons from what was happening in Italy, in Spain. I'm going wider now than the tracing app. I'm talking more generally about failures on testing and tracing. But whether this will give civil servants and ministers pause in future about the degree to which they want to create their own bespoke technological solutions, I genuinely don't know. But there certainly will be lessons to be chewed on for years to come, I think, for public policy researchers and academics from what's been happening in the UK over the last few months. Indeed, because it's a very difficult balance for the government, Sarah, because on the one hand, we're all expecting there will be a big public inquiry at some point, which will review the preparedness of state, the preparedness of the health service, how it reacted in the crucial weeks and months before lockdown, where a lot of decisions were taken that have since been criticised. But at the same time, they also have to act relatively quickly and now because with the example of the app if they wait to the inquiry to find out what went wrong then we might not have an app for a long time you know we heard Lord Bethel one of the health ministers saying that the app might not in fact be released till the end of the year which seems extraordinary given the claims the government were making a couple of weeks ago. One of the interesting things actually is when you look at some of the countries that have delivered the most effective responses on coronavirus by no means all of them have had a contact tracing app core to that response. Germany, for example, which of course is widely held up as an exemplar of a very adept response to containing the disease, they've literally only just launched their app. So I think there is a legitimate question to be asked whether one needs a contact tracing app. But the issue for the UK is wider, which is how is our manual tracing system working? I think a very effective and efficient manual tracing system could well be a total substitute for a digital app. But I think the problem is that right now, our manual tracing system is not going particularly well. There are still real issues. The latest data came out on Thursday showing that still more than one in four people testing positive are not being traced. And Chris Ham, the illustrious former head of the King's Fund think tank, pointed out that significantly more people are being traced via public health specialists on the ground in local authorities or via Public Health England than are being traced via this private sector delivered test and trace programme. So I think one of the issues has been the slow recognition of the actual repository of expertise that there was in local authorities. Their environmental health staff are incredibly experienced at 
tracing disease outbreaks and the contacts of those who contract, you know, food poisoning or whatever. But for a long time, the government didn't seem to even think of using them. They have now belatedly recognised the importance of doing so. But a lot of time has been wasted. If some of these problems can now be addressed, we can get a more joined up system that really does make use of all the expertise that's out there. It may well be that we can in the coming couple of months or little longer, perhaps, get a system up and running, which is so strong and so efficient, that actually the app very genuinely is only the cherry on the cake, as Matt Hancock and officials keep saying. Yes, Laura, because you've been looking at this topic as well about the human tracers. This was ramped up for the beginning of June and part of our world-beating contact tracing system, as Mr Hancock continually likes to see here. And if I'm right, the latest figures on this showed that about a quarter of outbreaks are not being successfully followed up. You know, what's the view inside government? Is it that the human contact tracing is working or that it needs to be better? And if the app, as we heard from Lord Bethel, might not be ready till the end of the year, could that see us through the easing of the lockdown? Because that's the real question. Because as we know, the government is trying to get this divide right between the health concerns and the economic concerns. And the push is growing from the Treasury, from Downing Street, to get the economy moving. But if they can't do that in a safe way, which is all down to the contact tracers, then we're really going to be in some much more difficult economic problems later in the year. I genuinely think there is a feeling within government that you don't need the app for contact tracing to work. And that yes, it's not perfect right now. As you mentioned, quarter of people are not necessarily working under the scheme. And there are obviously people who are being approached and might not accept that they are going to self-isolate. There are people who are refusing to hand over contact details. But generally, they feel as though this is a work in progress and it's getting better. The crucial thing for me (laughs) is that the government still aren't really publishing any data on on how quickly people are getting test results back. I think in order for track and trace to work and the human contact tracing system to be effective, people need to be able to get their test results back within 24 hours so that they can very, very quickly reach out to anyone that they might have been in contact with. That's how this works effectively. And it's how countries like South Korea have done it. South Korea were way ahead of the game on this and actually... Their experience, a little bit like ours, showed that people prefer to be contacted by humans. Because, of course, when you have to divulge who you've been in contact with, that might mean exposing the fact that you have not been following the lockdown rules and you might have been meeting up with people that really you shouldn't have been meeting up with. I do think it can work. But I think the most important thing is the government start telling us how effective their testing operation is going, because that's going to be the thing that makes this work. And that brings us finally, Sarah, onto the news that's just broken as we're recording this podcast on Friday, which is that the new UK's Joint Biosecurity Centre, which would be great if you could explain exactly what that is, has announced that the threat level from COVID has gone from four to three, which is good news for the government. And you can see Matt Hancock's already out saying this is proof that our strategy is working, that we're easing the lockdown and still the threat from COVID-19 is decreasing. How significant is this? Is it a bit of PR or is it genuinely? a sign that the battle against coronavirus is being won? I think it's genuinely a very positive sign. The whole issue of these alert levels has become rather politicised in the last few weeks because the government took the decision to 
release some of the lockdown measures, despite the fact that we were still at level four, which is defined as the exponential increase of infection in the community. Now, the measures that the government chose to relax were not meant to be relaxed until we'd reached level three. But some of the leading scientists and clinicians in the government were absolutely adamant that they were not prepared to say that we had reached level three. It was, in fact, one sign of this somewhat growing gulf between the politicians and the scientists. So the fact that we now have reached level three, I think we can take this as a serious sign because we know that the scientists would not have signed off on this if they were not completely happy that it was accurate. And the Joint Biosecurity Centre, that is the body that's going to be key in passing information about local outbreaks down to those local authorities. I mentioned earlier that their role in all of this is going to be absolutely crucial But right now, they're telling us that they're not getting the information. The transmission route from the centre, where much of the information about infection rates is being held, it's not working efficiently right now to get that information down to local councils. But the Joint Biosecurity Centre is going to be a very key link in making that happen. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to George, Robert, Sarah and Laura for joining. In the meantime, if you'd like what you've heard and would like to check out some more FT journalism, then you can find all a subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.